Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture comes from the Gospel of John, um, chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wendy. We're continuing today in our uh, summer sermon series, The Questions of Jesus, where each week we are looking at one question that Jesus posed to those he encountered in his earthly ministry, whether his disciples or strangers along the way. And these are important, as we ourselves have lots of questions we wish we could bring or do bring to Jesus. Do we know also he's got some questions for us? And not just questions of the challenging sort, but questions that comfort and console and lift us up, like questions we're looking at today. Has no one condemned you? He asks in all his mercy. Uh, today we're going to look at this, and then right after the sermon, we will have a brief time of Q&A, a chance for us to interact a little bit over the teaching and over this passage, and so please feel free to be jotting down notes or questions that you might want to raise, but let's first bow our heads in prayer together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We would be lost without you speaking into the darkness, shining your light, your light of truth and grace into our world and into our hearts, and so we ask that you would come now and help you, us, your weak people, help me, your weak servant, and enable us to hear your voice and change our lives by your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You might have seen the video this past week. It was going around everywhere. It was about the Little League Baseball Southwest Region Championships. And two teams, one from Pearland, Texas, and the other from 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, were facing off in a game. And the video captures one scary moment when the pitcher accidentally hit a fellow 12-year-old batter right in the head with the ball, sending him sprawling to the ground with his helmet flying off. After a few minutes of uncertainty, is he all right? Is he injured? Will he be able to get back up? The batter would get back up. He was okay, thankfully, and he went along to take his base. But the pitcher was still visibly shaken, understandably. Still afraid, nervous at the thought that he might have just injured his opponent. And so this child, this brave, courageous, athletically gifted child, he was crying head down, struggling to regain his composure and carry on with the game. Well, the batter, now on first base, notices this, and he quietly walks over from first base to the pitcher's mound, and he wraps his arm around this distraught pitcher, and he hugs him. Remember, this is the batter who was just hit in the head by this pitcher. He just took a ball to the head, and here he is embracing this pitcher. And he encouraged him with words that were actually picked up by the on-field microphone. He said, hey, you're doing a great job. Let's go. This touching gesture was hailed across the country as a remarkable act of sportsmanship. It was a spontaneous act of, of kindness, uh, shared among children, of course, that moved adults all around the nation, moved us, took us by surprise, I think in part because we live in a world that's so foreign to this kind of kindness. We live in a world that too often is graceless, a world that's full of condemnation, that's marked by retaliation, that knows so little of the grace that this child displayed. We know little about forgiveness and so much more about cancellation. We know little about kindness. We're pros at condemnation. And the world that Jesus lived in, that was captured in this passage, was really no different at all. A world and a culture of judgment, of accusation, of relentless condemnation. And here we have a story where, with no less, indeed more surprise, the grace of Jesus explodes on scene and no one knows what to do with it. This takes place in a passage that's very well known, one of the most beloved passages in all the Bible, in fact, one that's known well even among those that are new to the Christian faith. Now, you might know that this passage actually is absent from the earliest ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and so there's some debate about whether or not it should be included in biblical scripture. On the other hand, scholars also believe that it's likely that this incident did in fact take place historically in the life 
of Jesus. And for that reason, it has a wide reception around the world and throughout time of being preached throughout the global church. Even the reformer John Calvin said of this passage, there's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. And so we will. And here we find at least three points. We'll take a look at these together. First, the blindness of hypocrisy. Secondly, the marvel of mercy. And third, the changing of lives. The blindness of hypocrisy, the marvel of mercy, and the changing of lies. First, the blindness of hypocrisy. We see as the story goes along in verse 3 that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these were the most strict of the Jewish religious leaders of that day. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. We're told they made her stand before the group, which is what you did in judicial settings. Although in this case, almost for certain, their intent was also to publicly shame her. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what would you say? Of course, there are a couple of problems with this whole situation, and especially with the religious leaders' actions. First, it is true that in parts of the Old Testament, stoning was the punishment for adultery committed by betrothed or married persons. Of course, this is a reminder of the seriousness of sin, even specifically that of a sexual nature, and more specifically that of adultery, sin is a big deal. But however, it's also true if you were to look in the Old Testament that this penalty is actually applied to both parties. And here we only have one party, the woman, the more socially vulnerable of the two, dragged in front of these public leaders. Even commentator Don Carson comments, As such, adultery is not a sin one commits in splendid isolation. One wonders why the man was not brought with her. In this culture, the man could lead a respectable life while masking the same sexual sins with a knowing wink. And so already here we have an inconsistent application of the law. The first clue, the the, the authorities aren't actually or primarily concerned about holiness and justice. Well, what is it that they're concerned with? Second, they're concerned about setting for Jesus a trap. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Uh, What was this trap? See, if Jesus said, who cares about the Mosaic law he'd be accused of being a false teacher and an enemy of God's law. On the other hand, if he said, well, let's go ahead and stone her, he'd be accused of being unmerciful. More than that, Roman law prescribed that Jewish leaders needed to first check in with them before executing anyone. They didn't have authority to do that on their own without the consent of the Roman government. So Jesus probably wouldn't, would have gotten in trouble on top of that. Again, they weren't really concerned about justice and righteousness. They were just using her 
to get at Jesus. You ever do that? You ever do that? Where you're kind of making it look like you're bringing up the wrong that another person has done, whether to you or to someone else. No, no, I'm just raising the facts, you say. No, no, I'm just raising accusations when really your motive is about something totally different, something unrelated. Maybe it's to make yourself look good in other people's eyes by lowering another person. Or another motive around, maybe it's trying to get ahead and take advantage of the situation. Uh, Maybe you want to look better than your friends, and so you want to make sure that they get in trouble. Maybe you do this with your siblings as well. They're setting up for Jesus a trap. And so therefore, thirdly, Jesus goes straight to the heart, and he reveals their hypocrisy. Verse 7, let any one of you, Jesus says, who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's what St. Augustine said about this teaching, about this word from Jesus. He said, he sent them unto themselves. For without, they stood to accuse and censure Themselves they examined, not inwardly. They saw the adulteress. They looked not into themselves. Jesus wasn't wasn't saying that she wasn't guilty of sin. But he was saying you have no standing to accuse her in the manner in which you are. Given the deep, blinding hypocrisy that you harbor in your heart. They see her sin, and they cannot even see their own. The judgment, the self-righteousness, the ugliness of their own hearts, the way in which they're only seeking to tear her down in order to lift themselves up. You ever do that? Here are the comments of John Calvin on this same passage. Speaking about Jesus' comment, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, Calvin says, this is not an absolute and unlimited prohibition by which Christ forbids sinners to do their duty in correcting the sins of others, but by this word he only reproves hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves and their vices, but are excessively severe and even act the part of felons in censuring others. Every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. See, Jesus isn't saying you have no place to actually name the sins of other people, especially for their own good. Jesus isn't saying back off from the truth of things, but he is calling out the hypocrisy of ours that leads us into the pit of self-righteousness and judgment. He's not saying that we have no right to make moral judgments unless we're perfectly sinless. A lot of people use this passage to try to make that claim. Well, I, I can't throw the first stone because I'm not sinless. Nor is Jesus minimizing her wrongdoing. There was another spouse and other people in the picture. Some of you who have experienced this pain 
understand this personally, and you would not want, would you, Jesus to be like, hey, yeah, no big deal. Let's just move on and move forward. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's not being soft on sin. He just wants hypocrisy and self-righteousness to be dealt with as sternly as adultery. Do we? Do you in your own heart? I mean, friends, we have to reckon with the clear fact that Jesus probably went after the sin of self-righteousness and its twin hypocrisy amongst the Pharisees and religious leaders more than any other sin in the pages of Scripture. But see, the problem with them is that they are therefore rendered morally blind. They think they see but they absolutely cannot, neither the depth of her sin nor their own. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 when he taught a very similar thing. Do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Friends, are you aware of either latent or maybe outright hypocrisy and self-righteousness in your own hearts. Maybe there's an ongoing conflict right now and you're refusing to see the way in which you have contributed to that conflict. You're only seeing the wrongs of the other person. Maybe this is a habit in a relationship with a coworker or a spouse or a family member or a neighbor where you're sure you're right and it gives you the false confidence constantly to prosecute every way in which they fall short. Again, Jesus isn't saying there may be no wrongdoing in the picture. He's saying that you just have such a twisted and corrupted heart. You have no idea what you're doing when you are accusing them. You're owing, only sowing the seeds of death, and you leave no room for life. And speaking of life, let's move to the second point, the marvel of mercy. Once again, Augustine looks at this passage and sees Jesus' engagement with this woman, and he says what we find in Christ here is a wonderful gentleness. You see the wonderful gentleness of Jesus. One thing that stands out to me is the way in which Jesus talks to her, even reasons with her. Uh, he, he, he looks at all the people who are one by one going away, the older ones first, because they know they've got no leg to stand on. Uh, they've got no purity of heart with which they can actually, with integrity, bring her charges before Christ. One by one they go away until only Jesus was left with the woman standing still there before him. And then Jesus says, Woman, where are they? Uh, wh where are they? See, he, he, he's inviting her to notice the evidence. Has no one condemned you? 
Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you. Then neither do I condemn you. And so Jesus extends to her a surprising, marvelous word of mercy. He forgives her sin. And then he continues with a most amazing go now. Go on. Go in peace, in love, in the confidence of forgiven sins. Go, Jesus says, to you and me. Go from this prison of guilt and shame. Go from every verdict of condemnation that has a grip on your soul. Go from Satan's ceaseless whispers of accusation. Go from the, the mobs of, of condemnation. Go from your terror of God's judgment and go right into your Father's loving arms. Go into his eternal love. Go into and go towards the promises of God's grace. Go to the cross where your sins have been paid for. Beloved, Jesus says, go. Your sins are forgiven. You know Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Has no one condemned you, Jesus asks, then neither do I condemn you. Dostoevsky, in a well-known part of the classic, the Brothers Karamazov, states these words, this gospel truth. There is no sin, and there can be no sin on all the earth, which the Lord will not forgive to the truly repentant. Man cannot commit a sin so great as to exhaust the infinite love of God. Can there be a sin which could exceed the love of God? And so can I ask you, do you believe this? Can there possibly be any sin that can exceed, that can overwhelm, that can extinguish the infinite love of God? The answer, of course, is no. Do you believe this gospel promise? Maybe there's a sin lingering in your minds that has haunted you, perhaps for years or maybe just recently. Do you know there's no sin too big that God cannot forgive? Or perhaps a sin that is a habit, one that you feel like you can't break, or maybe you exerted some effort in years past, seasons past, and maybe you made some progress, but now you're discouraged because you feel like you're back where you started. And you've begun to believe the lie that this 
the, the power of this sin, this habit, is greater than the infinite love of God, do you know that's a lie? There's good news that God's grace is greater even than that sin, too, that no matter how long that has lasted, it will never outlast the forgiving love of God. Do you know the power of God's forgiving love? Have you tasted it perhaps for the first time, dear friend? Maybe you've been limping along in life. Maybe that's why you're here today. But you've had no true encounter with a God of grace, no true assurance that the wrongs in your life could truly be forgiven. I'd like to introduce you to a Jesus, a Savior who has died, who has paid for all of your sins, and who offers forgiveness to you. Not just psychological manipulation that gives you the gift of positivity that can be trumped on your bad days and by the barrage of condemnations from others. No, 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 no. This is objective, true, eternal, lasting. God bought forgiveness on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus for you. Forgiveness that will never change. This is the good news of the gospel offered to you today. Will you receive it? Will you receive it today? Every one of us, the forgiveness of Christ. And before moving on, I want to point out one important thing about Jesus' dynamic with this dear woman. One by one, all the judges around her, the would-be jurors and judges... Uh, slip away. They came to shame Jesus. They go away in shame, seeing the sin and hypocrisy of their hearts. One by one, they disappear until finally we're told this woman is left standing alone with the one sinless one, the one non-hypocrite, the one non-self-righteous one, the only righteous one in this setting. She's there with Jesus. And it's easy to assume that in the beginning that this immediately means that she just breathes a sigh of relief, but understand, listen to the question that he poses. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now she's with the only one who had the right to throw a stone. Perhaps she's terrified. Perhaps she knows finally she's face to face with the one true judge. Perhaps she knows that there's no wriggling out of this one. Perhaps she noticed Jesus writing with his finger on the ground. Now, what was Jesus doing there? Lots of ink has been spilled to try to explain what was going on in his mysterious actions. Perhaps he was just ignoring them, right? This is sort of, was it an ancient speak to the hand, right? <laughs> Jesus doodling on the ground, you're dead to me. Was that what he was saying? Or was it, as some have surmised, was he actually fulfilling verses from the prophets like Jeremiah 17, 13? Those who turn away from you, God, will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Or was it that he was enacting symbolic acts as I believe he may have, writing in the dirt with his finger, 
echoing the parts of Scripture like Exodus 31 that remind us that God alone was the God who wrote on the tablets of the Ten Commandments with his finger God's very law. In other words, Jesus was claiming for himself ever so subtly the very authority of God the lawgiver and God the judge. Perhaps she sees this. Perhaps she senses this. Perhaps she feels laid bare before him because she understands, do we, that Jesus never said she was innocent. She is guilty. He indicates so later when he says, leave your life of sin. This is sin. It is, in fact, before God, condemnable. Jesus, later on in the paragraphs below this passage, says in the Gospel of John, my judgments are true. And he says also, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus takes sin very seriously. He does assert the right to be the judge of the universe and the judge over every person. This is the one who says, I do not condemn you, I forgive you. See, because if I just said that to you, you would say, all right, big deal. But here's the God of the universe predicting a verdict that cannot, pronouncing a verdict that cannot be overturned. Here is your God speaking not to you, but before the whole world, heaven and earth, your sins are forgiven. That is the word you need to hear. That is the authority that you need to receive from the only one who can pronounce your forgiveness in this way. We have a habit, however, of thinking that what we really need to do is to downplay our sinfulness and sort of eke our way into, state, into a state of forgiveness and peace. I was reminded of this recently when watching a, a show that uh, Paula and I have been watching, The Morning Show, which stars Jennifer Aniston and other cast members. And there was one point in the story when after committing a, 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 a deadly wrong, a, a terrible wrong in, in sort of uh, seeking only her own good and, and not actually considering the needs of those around her, Driving away from that moment, she feels this, this flood of guilt and begins to mutter, even out loud, consoling herself, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. Do you ever feel that way? Do you counsel yourself in that way, in fact? But don't you know, friends, it doesn't work. Those words feel thin, and you know what? They are thin. They cannot counter the empirical evidence at hand that we do do wrongs, sometimes grave, grave wrongs. We will never find peace with our flawed and sinful lives simply by repeating to ourselves that we are good people. There's too much evidence to the contrary. But listen, here's the good news of this passage. You can find peace, however, reminding yourself that you're a loved person that you are a forgiven person. 
No, not, 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 not I'm a good person, I'm a good person, evidence to the contrary, I'm a good person. No, I, I, I make big mistakes, but I'm loved by God. I, I make huge mistakes that cannot be erased by themselves, but I am forgiven by God and by grace by those around me whom I have hurt and harmed. Don't you know you are a forgiven person even when you're not a good person? You are loved and no one can take that away from you if you're in Christ. And so we can stand even before the chorus of accusers in our head or in our lives around us who say condemned, condemned. You can stand before them and say, nuh-uh, my Jesus has a different verdict for me. You stand before the mob of judges in your life that say you're not good enough or you're not clean enough or you're not atoned enough. And you say, nah, uh my Jesus has a different word for me. He says, you're forgiven. He says, has no one else condemned you? Neither then do I. And you're standing alone now with Jesus, the author of justice and the author and perfecter of your faith the one who holds all authority to judge and all authority to forgive. And don't you know he loves you? Thirdly and finally, the changing of lives. Jesus says, go now, go, but that's not all he says. He says, go and leave your life of sin. You see, grace doesn't forego accountability. The forgiveness of sins does not undermine the call to grow and change. This, in fact, is the life of repentance. Repentance is not merely confessing your sins and receiving forgiveness. Repentance means changing your mind, your heart, your, your life. This, too, is a part of grace. In fact, it's actually the fruit of God's grace. Because we now no longer need to be pretending about the wrongs that we are never accountable for. No, I didn't really do that. I'm not that bad. But no, I am sometimes really bad. And I'm always deeply loved. And so now, out of the strength of that love, can I be more like the lover of my souls, this Jesus? Can I be more like him in the way that he forgives me now forgiving other people? Don't you know? Because forgiven people forgive people. And the way in which you can love with gentleness and mercy now instead of self-righteousness and condemnation, the way that you could live with integrity even before the gazing eyes of people rather than hypocrisy, the way in which you can live a life of hope and love instead of shriveled discouragement because you know you have the boast of one who was laid low and that's been lifted up. The, the boast of one who was dead in their sins but now has been given life. The boast of one who knew that they were condemned, are condemned if left to themselves, but now know that they have the forgiveness of Christ. And it's out of the power of that that we begin to say, I, I, I'm not what I need to be, ought to be, should be. Oh, but by God's grace, he's taking me on a journey step by step conforming me into the likeness of Christ, helping me to become more like him in his righteousness and his love and his beauty. 
Jesus is changing our lives. Don't you dare use the forgiveness of Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free card that just lets you live however you want with no account. Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. The same Augustine who boasted in the gentleness of Christ says this also about this passage. He bestows on you space for correction. See, that's what grace does. It gives you room to grow. He bestows on you space for correction. But do you love the delay of judgment more than the amendment of your ways? Are you just glad you're not busted? Or do you actually want to change? And here's what he says. Have you been a bad man yesterday? Today, be a good man. Have you gone on in your wickedness today? At any rate, change tomorrow. Not by your own power, but by the grace of God. Not out of fear, but because Jesus has loved you so. I wonder what it would be like if we lived in a world where a kid who got beamed in the head Going over and hugging and encouraging a pitcher that beamed him wouldn't be such a surprise. I wonder if we could ever live in such a society uh, where grace and non-retaliation would be the norm and not a headline. I wonder, maybe not on this side of heaven, but I wonder if we could be just that in the church. Little by little, and more, and more, and more. But it takes the risk of faith to dare to live like this, believing in God's forgiveness, receiving it radically, being convicted of our hypocrisy and self-righteousness and judgmentalism, and then letting the grace of God change our hearts and change our lives. That's what the church is all about, our own little baseball team, as it were growing together and learning to love even as we ourselves have been loved. Dear friends, has no one condemned you? Guess what? Jesus doesn't. He forgives you of every one of your sins. Let's pray. Give us grace now, O Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe these things to be true. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. I'm going to give you just a moment to settle in and maybe think about some things you've heard. I'm going to pick up the mic and we'll chat a little bit and take your questions.